Good morning. I'll do it one more time. Good morning. It is wonderful to see so many faces in here with us today, to see a few new faces. And I, I see a very happy grandpa over there. I'm so glad you're both here today. And I, we're so, so glad to have you all here this morning at Springfield Church of the Brethren. Today is Sunday, May the 15th. I don't know if he's going to watch it, but to my brother Jacob, happy, what, I'm 36 now, happy 34th birthday. Our scripture today comes from Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And be at peace, uh, and the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Blessed is the word. Amen. As many of you already know, I, I do like Disney films. Always have as a kid and as an adult with a kid who loves Disney, it makes it even easier to watch them. One of my all-time favorite, and I highly recommend this to anybody who is around a kid, whether it be nephew, niece, grandchild, your own child, random kid who always stops at your house and plays with your kid or whatever. I highly recommend Pixar's Inside Out. It's a great film for talking about emotions and how we deal with them. Now, for anyone who hasn't watched that, the broad overview is... There's a young girl named Riley who grew up in rural Minnesota who learned to ice skate as soon as she could walk on the family pond and joined the ice hockey leagues as she got older. And, you know, all the things you do as a kid growing up in a small town, friendships and whatnot. But her dad decides to join in a new startup company in San Francisco, California, thereby meaning the whole family has to get up and leave Minnesota and drive all the way out to California, where, of course, it never freezes there, going from rural small town to the big city. She's not happy, as one might guess. But this journey isn't, this story isn't told just through Riley but through her emotions, through this control center that exists in her brain and where her five emotions try to help her through this change. They are all anthropomorphized. That is, you take a, a non-human thing and you make it into a human of some kind or give it human-like features. There is Joy, her primary emotion, the leader of the gang, the gang who is, well, joy, happiness, she was Riley's first emotion and the one who kind of takes charge. Now, we generally think of joy as a positive thing, but we do see in Riley that it's so positive and so overwhelming that Riley is unable to deal with stressful situations. Very quickly, we figure out 
that when one emotion dominates the others, it's a bad thing. That's the big part of the story. Then there's sadness, who is the least liked emotion in the group. But, of course, the story, the big part of the story is that sadness has come to be appreciated as that which gives us the ability to deal with stress and that which gives us the ability to be empathetic with others. Then there's anger, who wants to make sure that everything is right, everything is just for Riley, and, and sticks up, that Riley can stick up for herself. And at one point, he takes charge, and then things kind of go sideways real quick, because, of course, too much anger is rage, and rage doesn't help anyone. Then there's envy, or uh, envy, disgust, who, who wants to protect her from being poisoned either by food or because she hates broccoli. Of course, disgust is uh, when they animated her, they created her that looked like a, a broccoli sprout, which is kind of funny. <laughs> but yeah, there's by broccoli or by, by situational. Uh, you know, we make sure we are bathed, that we aren't disgusting because that helps us fit in with a social group. We don't commit certain social faux pas because we want to fit in. Disgust keeps her socially and physically healthy. And last but not least is fear, who is tall and purple and gangly. He's actually based on a raw nerve. Fear's job is to keep Riley safe. In fact, when it's her first day for in, her, in her new school, he compiles a giant document full of all of the possible worst-case scenarios, the top three being quicksand, a meteorite strike, or being called on by the teacher. I'll tell you, I think you can guess which one happens. Anyway. As you discover throughout the movie, having too much of one or too, much, or too little of another, is not healthy for us. Just like joy too much causes repression and manic behavior, too much of sadness is depression, too much of disgust socially isolates us, too much anger is rage, too much sadness. I mean, too much, uh, aye, 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 too much fear is anxiety, which he it develops at one point in the movie for a bit. It's about finding a balance. And there is a right balance. We call that, I'm going to call this awesome fear. Now, the word awe is not one, we, we often just throw it on the word in front of awesome. You know, oh, this is awesome, without ever thinking about what the word actually means. Awe is a reverent respect or a respectful reverence mixed with either fear or wonder. So walking on a trail and coming out to an outlook and seeing all the valley and the mountains spread out before you and you have this feeling of reverence and wonder, that is an awesome experience. The other kind of awesome happened to me, one kind of in that bear story, uh, but actually really happened to me as a teenager. I remember this very distinctly as one of the most supreme amount of fear I have ever felt. I was at the Columbus Zoo. I must have been at Grandma Heiser's because they lived in Marion. We were at the Columbus Zoo. It was Christmas time. When you go around the zoo in the after dark, 
You see all the Christmas lights and all that? Well, of course, the enclosures don't have any lights in them because why put lights in an enclosure? You want the animals to sleep well at night, right? So anyway, I'm walking through, and I'm passing. It's a cage for some kind of big cat, one of the big ones that, like, leap out of the trees at people, you know, puma, mountain lion, jaguars, leopards, you know, those big cats. Frankly, the ones that are scarier to me than even lions. I really shouldn't be, but anyway. I'm looking into the cage. I can't see a thing because, you know, it's dark. Until that cat opened its eyes or shifted its head. I don't know what it did, but all of a sudden I got the eye glint. You know, the way you see it in a movie or hear about in a book where all you can see is this giant predator's eyes in the dark and they're staring at you. It was like ice water running through my veins. This kind of fear and reverent respect for this animal that if it was not for the cage between us could easily run out and kill me. I don't know if it's a mountain lion, I think I'd have a chance. Not a leopard though. Those things are terrifying. Respectfully, terrifying. That's the kind of fear that keeps us alive. It's the kind of fear that keeps us from stepping out in front of oncoming traffic, the kind of fear that makes us, well, put on our, our seatbelts that go to the doctor and check in on ourselves. This is the kind of fear that we need, the kind of fear that respects our body's ability to stay alive and the world's ability to try and take it. This is the kind of fear that appears throughout the Bible. This middle-of-the-road fear. The two extremes being anxiety. You know, I think we've all dealt with that at one point in our lives. One, one reason or another, we have felt anxiety. The other being like my nephew, Calvin, who at the age of two had absolutely no fear and would just walk off the end of the bed, not believing gravity existed, I guess. But this middle-of-the-road fear. In the Bible, it is called the fear of the Lord, or the fear of God. And you will find it in basically every book, starting at Genesis chapter 20. The last time it's mentioned is Revelation 19. What is this fear of the Lord? Uh, let's go with the Genesis one, first one. So Abraham is around 100-some years old. His wife Sarah... 90-ish, 95. We're not really 100% sure on this age gap. But she is quite advanced in her age. However, she is extraordinarily attractive. How attractive? So attractive that Abraham worries that whenever they encounter a powerful king, that this powerful king will kill him so that they can take her away and marry her. Mind you, she's also past the age of childbearing. I mean, we, we often talk about these extraordinarily long ages in the Old Testament and Genesis, but even she admits, I'm really old. This is after she has had, um, after the, the people came and said that she would have Isaac, and she laughs at them because that's so silly. Anyway, so he's traveling, and he comes into a, near a city called uh, Gerar, if I remember the name right. And there is King Abimelech. 
all these fun names, Abimelech. Anyway, so Abimelech comes out and greets Abraham, and you know Abraham's not traveling small. He's got a couple hundred people and thousands of animals with him, so it's, it's a thing to notice. It's not like, you know, oh, here's Abraham and eight people and 20 goats. No, he comes, he sees, and, and greets Abraham, and Abraham is so afraid that when Abimelech sees Sarah and says, wow, she's beautiful, who is she? He goes, she's my sister. He goes, okay, that's great, can I marry her? Sure, you go right ahead, you marry her. So Abimelech takes Sarah away, takes her to his, takes her to his, his keep, and he marries her, and before he can consummate the marriage, he has a nightmare in which God tells him, what are you doing? This will create a huge curse on your household. And I'm like, oh, okay. And apparently there is a curse that actually settles. You don't find that until the last verse of the story, where the animals stop having baby animals, the women stop having babies themselves, and everything's kind of going to pot in a system where you have to have lots of children in order to continue the system to work. It's a big issue when they stop having children. So he goes back to Abraham and says, what's going on? Is this your wife? And he goes, yeah. You lied to me. No. No, he didn't actually lie. Sarah and Abraham were half-siblings. Same dad, different moms. We're going to kind of bypass that being weird and just remind you that the rules that are applied in the Torah that would deny this were not applied to the patriarchs. Well, why did you lie to me? Because I thought that in this land there might be no one who fears the God, fears God. To be fair, that makes sense, right? As far as we know, at this point, there's only a couple people who actually worship God. God. And I'm saying God here, I mean Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, El. You know, these are all names that God has given throughout the Bible. Uh, but no one worships this God. They all worship lots of gods, but they don't worship this God. There's a few. Abraham will encounter one who he becomes friends with, a man who's kind of connected to the ancient roots of Jerusalem. And out of Abraham's line, there will be actually many groups that worship God. Um, we remember when Moses ran away, he ends up living with a group of Midianites who are descendants of Abraham as well. And um, his father-in-law, Jethro, is a priest of God. But generally, everyone else is worshiping other gods. And it's not like Abraham could really expect God to stand up and protect him in his mind. In his mind, God is one God among many. I know that's crazy to hear, but I will, I will remind you that the very first time that the Bible tells us that there is only one God is in Isaiah 44. It takes us half the Old Testament before we get to the point where God proclaims there's only one God. Now, I know as crazy as that sounds, as I told the Bible study group when we encountered this, we're reading Isaiah right now, that I believe firmly that God meets us where we are at. And these are a bunch of humans who do not understand the world, do not understand how things work, and they fully believe in the power of lots of holy spirits of different kinds. 
It took us a while before we got to the point where we could accept, oh, there's only one God. So Abraham fully believes that there are other gods and that they are powerful and dangerous and maybe more powerful than the God he worships. So he had reason to be afraid. Us looking back on it now go, no, you don't. But he did. That was his world. That's what he understood. I mean, there had just happened one chapter prior, Genesis 19, an entire community that so disbelieved in God that they were willing, well, didn't believe in God at all, um, that they believed in a, a, such a different basic social system, such a basic set of rules that they were willing to harm visitors, breaking the basic law of hospitality, which is the it's like the underlying wall of the Old Testament in many places, the wall of hospitality. And for that, their cities and the cities around them were pummeled into the ground by fire and brimstone. Of course, that was after, you know, Lot and his friends and whatnot were threatened and almost killed. We all know this story, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the chapter before. So he's got to have this in his mind. He knows that God may punish people, but it doesn't mean that they get out of there unscathed right first. So he's trying to protect himself. There's no one here that fears God the same way that he fears God. That's what he thinks. There's no one here who's respectful, who understands that God is this all-powerful kind of being, that they may do things that will harm him. That's the first time this fear of God is mentioned, this respectful reverence, but understanding that God could, you know, pummel your city into dust using fire and brimstone from the sky. <laughs> That's the one that we're called to live. Don't be unfearful. Be just fearful enough. The fear that keeps you alive. But then we have the other extreme, and that's what Jesus talks a lot about. Jesus, is, you know, Jesus doesn't really talk about having the fear of God. That's not his big thing. He kind of knows everyone here already fears God to a certain extent. Maybe not enough to do the right thing, but they fear God somewhat. Now we have the other extreme. People who are worried all the time. Those who are anxious. And over and over and over again, he has to remind him, look, look at the birds of the field, look at the flowers. Do not be anxious. Do not worry about putting things into the, uh, you know, putting things into storehouses. You know, concentrate on doing the right thing right now. And for whatever those worries are, let God take care of them. And that's what Peter is saying to, I mean, sorry, not Peter. That's what Paul is saying to the Philippians. Because they were living in a world of a great deal of worry. Persecution was just starting in, the, in the, um, what we call today Asia Minor or Turkey. Actually, then it was Asia Minor. Now it's Turkey. It was just starting for them. It was just starting in Greece as well, where all of a sudden Christians have kind of come under the notice of the local groups. And they're not crazy about them. And so they start to harm them start to socially and economically separate them out for, you know, holding them down, making life hard. Death, disease, destruction. 
don't be anxious, Peter. Or I keep saying Peter. I was reading a first Peter line today, and it just stuck in my head. Paul says to the Philippians, don't be worried. God will take care of you. Whatever those worries are, just take them and hand them off to God. But that's not the dangerous part of his prayer today. You know, we've been doing dangerous prayers. Your will be done. Dangerous? I'm forgetting all of a sudden. What was last week's? <laughs> huh? None of you remember. Oh, Lordy. I have to try harder. It's escaping me. That's okay. This week, it's reveal my fears. That's, that's a little different. Why, why do I need my fears revealed? You know, with that bear story, it was pretty obvious. We are all feeling fear. Maybe a little bit of anger on Mama Bear's part. But we're all feeling fear, and we recognize that. But so often, fear ends up being an underlying driver for us to do things we, don't, we know we shouldn't do. Think about it. Why are people greedy? This is my theory. But I think it's mostly because they're fearful. They're fearful they won't have enough. They won't be able to eat tomorrow. They're fearful because they, they lived through an economic hardship and they know how terrible it is to have to live on bread soup. And they do not want to ever end up in that situation again. And they are fearful they will. Or they are fearful for their children. They are fearful because they've lived through some awful situation in their own lives. And they do not want their children to experience that themselves. And so, why is this parent overbearing? The new battery. No. Give me a second here. <laughs> Hello? I could have sworn. I've changed these last week. I still have the old batteries that I pulled out sitting right there. Anyway, why does an anxious parent exist? It's because they fear for their kids. Why do people do lots of things? I remember making so many dumb decisions, especially as a young adult basically because I was socially awkward and always afraid of being rejected by others. Fear is a powerful driver, but we don't always realize it. We don't always realize that fear is the root of these things. That's why we pray, God, reveal my fear. But the problem when you ask God to reveal your fear is God might do it. Are you ready to deal with that? Now, this is why I recommend for any, any adult who's ever dealing with anything or a child, go see a counselor. Go see a therapist. 
it's important to take care of your health, your mental health as much as your physical health. Because God might really reveal that fear, might really scrape away the dust and the grime that you have allowed to cover it up so that you don't have to look at it. But when you reveal it, when you scrape it back, when you ask God to scrape it open, and you let it open, and you look at it, and you will have to deal with it. On the other side of that is a transformation. No longer will you have that fear acting quietly underneath you. No longer will you allow it to judge how you do things. That's part of the story in Inside Out, actually. As Riley grows, comes closer to 12 years old, the emotions start to realize that emotions aren't just this or that. They aren't just angry, sad, fearful, joyful, or disgust. That rather emotions mix and create new things in ways we never expected that memories that are happy can also be sorrowful, that are angry can be fearful, that our disgust can be happy. I think that's what eating Limburg cheese is, right? And so we call on God. God, pull back. Pull back all those things that we have hidden underneath. Pull back and reveal my fear so that I can work on it. So that I can be a better person. So I am not lashing out or doing destructive behaviors towards myself or towards others because I am afraid and don't know it. God, I don't want to be anxious. God, I don't want to be fearless. I want to be right in the middle. I want to deal with these, and I want to look to you in awe and know that everything is going to be okay in the end. God, reveal my fear. Thank you. As you go out today, I encourage you to pray that God will reveal your fears, whatever they may be. And I encourage you, of course, to go find help if you find those fears are overwhelming. But I promise you, when you're able to do that, and when you're able to work through it and give those fears over to God, you'll come out a better person. You'll come out someone you can deal better with the true fears of this world and be joyful in it. As we have been doing, I invite you to join me in what I still consider the most dangerous prayer in the Bible. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and lead us not into temptation. We forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.